Welcome to Breitbart News Daily. What a full show we had today in the second hour of the show. And you can, uh, if you subscribe to SiriusXM, you can listen to the, the full podcast of the three-hour show. Uh, we talked about the rocket and the hospital in Gaza. It's such an incredible story. It's so, it's, it just couldn't, couldn't have written it any more perfect than how it, was, uh, how it happened yesterday with the media and their bias. It just revealed so much. It's spectacular. So we talked all about that in the second hour. But I want to present to you here the first second show where we talked about refugees and decolonizing. This word decolonize. And I don't know if I made this point in this segment or not, but it's amazing how colonizing is a bad thing, the worst thing. It's terrible. It's awful. Oh, you're so. Yet, how is millions of Muslims immigrating all over the world? How is that not colonizing? But it's the good kind or something, right? Here's our first segment of the show. to talk about this missile attack at the hospital in Gaza? Did Israel blow up a Gaza hospital and kill 500 men, women, and children? Or was it an errant missile from Hamas that was supposed to be shot into Israel, but it didn't make it and landed on their own hospital? We may never know. We may never know. So what do you do, you know? We, we'll just have to take the word of the terrorists on this one. It's like a tie goes to the runner situation, you know? You're playing backyard stickball with the boys, and it's a tie. Ah, well, tie goes to the runner. It's similar here. Tiebreaker goes to the terrorists. Israel says Hamas did it. Hamas says Israel did it. Ah, toughy. Now here's a video that Israel has of a bomb of a missile shot in the air and then spinning around and landing straight down at the exact same moment when the hospital blew up. But Hamas said it was Israel. So got a real toughy here. So we'll talk about that coming out. I know it's a little early in the morning for sarcasm, but um, we'll talk more about that in the next hour. I cannot wait for that. But that's a uh, situation there where we have two very different positions. Each saying, you did it. <laughs> One side said, you did it. The other side says, no, no, you did it. Here's another issue where we have totally different, could not be further apart positions on what to do. Some people in power, Tom Cotton, most notably Marco Rubio, they're saying we have to deport visa holders who support Hamas. Marco Rubio the other day said we can do that and we should. He says DHS has the proper authority already to deport anyone on a visa who is supporting a terrorist group, and Hamas is an uh, official terrorist group. So we can already do that, Marco Rubio says. Then Tom, Tom Cotton came back and said, no, no, not only can we, DHS must, they have a mandate, they must deport people who support terrorists. Because that's one position. 
So what, but we're talking about Marshall Blackburn at uh, 730 today. So that's one position. The other position that people are taking is we need to import refugees from Gaza. So one side is saying we should we should get rid of, not kill, but just take send them out away from our country, people of this worldview. And another group is saying we need to import as many of these people as we can. Those are those are different positions. I don't know how you come together on that one. Now. I say we just uh, take the position of every other Middle Eastern country on this one. The King of Jordan says the humanitarian situation in Gaza must be dealt with inside Gaza and the West Bank and not be pushed into neighboring countries. He told reporters, quote, this is a red line. No refugees to Jordan. (laughs) Why, Why not? What's wrong, Jordan? Why won't you bring in people from Gaza? AP says, uh, the King of Jordan, you don't have to carry this out on the shoulders of others. But we, America, we are expected to carry it on our shoulders? The head of Jordan's royal court told the Human Rights Watch any influx of Palestinians because you think, well, why not? Why why won't Jordan? Why won't they accept refugees? Any influx of Palestinians would alter Jordan's demographic balance and potentially lead to instability. (laughs) That's fantastic. It's like, yeah. I know. Same. I agree. Don't want it. Don't want it here. And either does Jordan. Well, how about Egypt? Why doesn't Egypt let all these Palestinians? They're refugees. They're refugees. They're not letting anyone in. Why not Egypt? What gives? There's only 2 million people in Gaza. Egypt has 109 million people. So what's another 2 million? Your fellow Muslims. What's the problem? Well, Hamas is an offshoot of the Muslim Brotherhood. And Egypt does not like the Muslim Brotherhood. The the president of Egypt says that the Muslim Brotherhood is more interested in an Islamic empire than they are interested in the benefit of Egypt. So the president of Egypt is very Egypt first. But we in America, we're not allowed to be America first. So here we have two neighboring countries. Iran, of course, won't bring anyone. There's There's a bunch of neighboring countries. Uh, Muslim countries, and uh, none of them will allow any refugees from people right next door. And they're explicitly making the claim, we don't like their culture, we don't like their worldview, this would be bad for the demographics and the stability of our country. They're explicitly making it, and I don't blame them. But then we have to take them in. Why is Iran not just having daily shuttles from Gaza to Tehran? 
what gives? No one wants him. Now, there's a few reasons why. They're going to terrorist. But also, it's not really about the Palestinian people. It's about destroying the Jews. You'll hear about uh, oh, the Israel is uh, keeping these people in an open-air prison. No, it's all the Muslim countries are keeping them in an open-air prison. They won't let them leave. They won't let them leave because they want them there because they want missiles to be blown up at hospitals so that the whole world and our media falls right in line. We'll document it all coming up in an hour. Blames Israel for it. Because it's all that oppressor-oppressed narrative. You keep the people oppressed. If Muslim countries keep the people in Palestine oppressed, then it will always make the Jews look bad. If they can always, if people can look at Tel Aviv and be like, oh, that looks like a pretty nice place. And then Gaza City, well, that place looks like a real, real disaster. Must be the Jews' fault. Then they'll always keep the Palestinian people just down right where they are. Not only are the Egyptians, but again, now, this is like an interesting story here. But again, this is real because there are people in power here in America, in Congress, who want to bring refugees here. I don't know, maybe, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm too heartless. 1-866-95-PATRIOT, 1-866-95-PATRIOT. Is there a reason why we should bring Gaza refugees? Some people say, uh, oh, listen, uh, Hamas doesn't speak for the Palestinian people, or not all the Palestinian people support Hamas. I wonder when the when that. It's such an interesting thing. Does that? When is that true? When is that not true? You know, at, at what point are the people of a country responsible for their leadership? And and what situations are they not responsible for their leadership? I don't know. And there was there were, there were elections for Hamas, two thousand six, and even the number two group in charge they're not like like a bunch of peace loving Westerners, right? Right. So I don't know, like what what people are responsible for the government and what people are not responsible. I just want to know that. I think the default should be a people are responsible for the government and should be held responsible for the government, and I think that's true even for America. We don't like our government, but we're still responsible for it. And you say, well, I didn't vote for these clowns in office. Yeah, but everyone voted for their own clowns. And, you know, and, and we're all, we're here. Like, who else is responsible? Who else would be responsible if not you? So I don't know what to do with that ever. And I think that's even, because then people are like, oh, but what about dictators? You have a dictator who wrestled power, who took power from the people. It's like, okay, yeah, but you also, then it's your responsibility to overthrow that. I don't, I don't know how long I can not hold you responsible for even being under the yoke of a dictator. And that's a tricky thing. So like I, I so no, no one in Gaza is responsible for Hamas. I can't hold, I can't hold anyone in the Gaza Strip responsible for the terrorist group that runs their country, their country. I what am not, I can't do that at all. So we're supposed to have no discernment, no discrimination whatsoever. We're just, okay, so if we're not supposed to assume that everyone in Gaza is a Hamas sympathizer, we're supposed to assume that everyone in Gaza is a, uh, like a big George Washington fan. 
and would be great to have in America? If I'm not allowed to make one assumption, why do I? Why must I make the exact opposite assumption? We're not allowed to have any discrimination. Discrimination is a is a bad word, and I would like to reclaim the word discrimination. Discrimination is not a bad word. It means to distinguish differences between. That's all discrimination means. It means to to notice, observe differences between and make appropriate judgments about. It's okay to discriminate. We discriminate all the time. I was cooking yesterday with the kids and uh, Jack said, is that pan hot? Like a cast iron skillet making meatballs. Is that pan hot? I said, does it look hot? And he saw like steam coming off the pan. He said, yes, it does. He discriminated between a hot pan and a not hot pan. We discriminate all the time, but we're not allowed to do it with potential terrorists coming into our country. So you're not allowed. Well, it's too far. That's too far. You just have to assume the best. I don't, don't want to. Oh, I can't believe you wouldn't do that. The Egyptians aren't letting in people. Not only are they not letting in refugees, they have a massive border. Well, I shouldn't say massive. Well, it's not massive as in big. It's only eight miles long. But it's massive in that they have a steel wall that goes 60 feet underground to stop tunnels. Hamas are big into tunnels. Which as we talked with the Navy SEAL yesterday, we talked to the Navy SEAL, we never even got to that difficulty of rescuing hostages with tunnels. How do you, how do you go and rescue 199 hostages not knowing where they are, densely populated area, and they're probably underground in a series of tunnels that how can we know what those look like or how they're fortified or booby-trapped or whatever. It's an impossible thing. We'll talk more about that in a minute too. But uh, Egypt has a, a wall, a steel wall that goes 60 feet underground to stop tunneling. Then they built another wall. So they have two walls above ground, all with electric sensors and the military patrols at nonstop. That's, that's, that's there. We're told walls are immoral. Walls are wrong. Walls are mean. But we're supposed to take them in. I don't know why people play with fire. What is what? Why do you why do you do this? Why do you play with fire? There's an older couple from Minnesota, from Minnesota, who lived near the Gaza border in Israel, but they were they're in favor of Palestinian rights, so they're pro in Israel, pro Palestine, killed by Hamas. The woman's daughter said of mom, whenever there was a military operation, she would always protest. Because you don't treat human beings like that no matter what their religious belief is and what their ethnicity is. Okay, you can protest all you want. They'll kill you. They did. Killed her and the husband. We've we've talked a lot these last couple of days, but... It's really important to understand how intersectionality applies to this, why people support Palestine. And it's because their worldview is oppress, oppressor versus oppressed. 
oppressive or suppressed. Everything. Everything fits into that narrative. That's why the media, and again, we'll talk about it in about 40 minutes. That's why the media believes Hamas when it comes to this missile that hit the hospital. They believe Hamas, the terrorist group. Because Hamas are the oppressed, and you have to believe the oppressed. The oppressed have a greater claim to truth. There's no such thing as truth right, from the left. But you can't live like that. You can't operate like that. So there has to be some way to figure out who's right or something, who has the moral high ground in every moment. And it's whoever's the most oppressed. And Gaza is the most oppressed. Israel is the, the, the big mean oppressors. So you have to come to the support of the Palestinians all the time, even if the oppressed kill you. Now this, this story just happened just to prove how this is a universal thing. This isn't just applied to uh, Israel and Gaza. I just saw this story this morning. Okay, so we have a Soros-backed DA in Louisiana. Right, Soros-backed DA. Just elected 22, the whole thing. Social justice, bail reform, like a big Soros guy, DA, was carjacked at gunpoint with his mother in the car. Apparently, this is, uh, this is what the news says, two suspects pointed high-powered automatic rifles at them. Carjacked. Carjacked. Carjacked isn't, I stole your car. It's, you're in the car. I, we're going to rip you out of the car and then steal your car. His black Lincoln Navigator. Nice $100,000 car. And these same people carjacked a 22-year-old 30 minutes after that, less than half a mile away. So we have people going on a carjacking spree. One of them was the DA of the, of the city. Will this person come out and say, crime's out of control? <laughs> no, I don't think so. Oh, I can't wait to follow up on that story. I can't wait. This, I, I, I predict that this person will come out and say that this is the voice of the oppressed, the language of the oppressed. If only we had better, uh, you know, reform jail programs and, and whatever, right? All that stuff. Because they can't give up on that worldview that the oppressed can do no wrong. Even if the oppressed carjack me and my mom, or even if the oppressed kill, kill family members, I cannot give up on that. And that, I, that's truly most people. Even if those people will kill you, there's been you know, these protests or demonstrations, whatever, around. And I've seen people with these signs, and I can't tell if they're joking. Like, I, they could be. I don't think they are. I think they're that oblivious. But people are holding signs saying "Queers for Palestine." Queers for Palestine. Do you know what the the penalty is for being gay in the Gaza Strip? You get ten years in prison for any homosexual act in Palestine. Ten years. But you'd be lucky if you got that. They'll probably just kill you. Queers for Palestine? Are you kidding me? Why? Because queers say that they're oppressed. First of all, any opportunity to make it about them, they'll always grab it. But uh, I'm oppressed. I'm queer. So I'm oppressed. And the Palestinians are oppressed. And oppressed peoples have to support each other all the time, no matter what. Even if those people would kill me, 
I truly, if I go there, I step foot on the in this ground, they will murder me. I still have to support them because they're the oppressed. See how see how deeply held that is. That's amazing. Let me let me say one last thing. We're gonna talk next. We'll take your phone calls too. Eight six six nine five picture. The question is, should we bring in refugees from Gaza? Maybe I'm way off. It's fine. I could be way off here. No Slater, we have an obligation to help everyone around the world. War torn, poor huddled masses. You've seen the Statue of Liberty, Slater. Come on. I mean that gift from France for being a democracy. No, no, no. The bring every poor people, poor person in the world statue. So we've uh, we've all heard the word equity over these last few years. Of course, social justice, diversity, inclusion, belonging is is one of the new buzzwords as well. There's another buzzword from the left. It is decolonize. Decolonize. You've heard it a lot even these last few days. Israel, they're called colonizers. That is a insult. That is a pejorative. To call someone a colonizer is the ultimate sign of their power. And power is bad. So if you are a country and you have power and you, uh, you colonize then you are abusing your power on oppressed people, right? So think of, uh, you know, if someone calls you a racist, that's like you know, it's a, the ultimate insult uh, or accusation, uh, similar colonizer. If, if your country is a colonizing country, then you're awful. All colonizing countries in history have been bad, whether it was the British in India or Europeans in Africa and South America and America all around the world, whatever, colonizers are all bad. And Israel is is the ultimate colonizer right now. And they want to decolonize. Okay, what does that mean, decolonize, exactly? In 2021, Harvard hired a guy for a program called Decolonize Harvard. So this is a way, in a a real religious way, to... uh, Purge Harvard of their sin. All right, we, Harvard says we are sinful. We have we are we have done wrong. We we are a colonizing force. We are terrible, and we need to purge our like an exorcism. We need to purge our sin. So they hired a trans queer guy, Marcelo Montalvo, and his first goal. These are his words. His first goal is to get people to understand and frame Harvard as a, these are his words, settler, colonial, genocidal. Those are, these all go hand in hand. If you're a colonizer, you're by definition a genocide, genocidal nation. So, we, so Harvard is a settler, co- a, a colonial, genocidal, Eurocentric institution built on the foundational violence of white Europeans. Right? So that, that's all bad. So there needs to be a decolonizing 
process. Right, we, need to de- we need to get rid of all these horrible things in Harvard. And after this, this struggle is complete, after this process is complete, what would be left, you ask? What's the end goal? He said, Harvard and the settler university, it's Harvard, may cease to be recognizable as Harvard as such. Admitted the guy paid for by Harvard who said the goal is to, quote, abolish the university altogether. So in the name of diversity and inclusion and belonging and decolonizing, the goal, said it, the decolonizer, is to abolish the university entirely. That's what decolonize means. It means to destroy. It's very similar. So ra- racism and anti-racism, it's just, it's just, the, it's just more racist. It's just different racism. Right? Racism is racism, and then anti-racism is just, it's also, it's just racism still. And sitting there, so if colonizing is bad, if colonizing, if they say colonizing is to destroy, they say, oh, we need to decolonize. Well, that, that also means to destroy. They, they, will, they want to destroy Harvard, make it unrecognizable from what it is today. And they may be successful. Harvard is playing with fire by inviting these people in. It's suicide. They've been doing it for years. And you, we are supposed to do this to ourselves as a country. We are supposed to decolonize America. Now, of course, we can't kick people out of America. We can't kick you out. But we can let people in. We can change everything about America. We can cease to understand and recognize America as such because we are colonial, Eurocentric, genocidal, and founded on violence and Eurocentric, all these terrible, awful things. So we need to be decolonized. One way to do that would be to bring in everyone else from around the world. Do you remember when Trump got in big trouble for two things? First, the Muslim ban, which is, uh, these are two of the pinnacles of Trump derangement syndrome. The first was the Muslim ban. Remember the Muslim ban? I think there were seven countries that Trump said, uh, we're, not, we're not letting in any more people from these countries for a minute. Okay, can we just figure out what the heck's going on? And, oh, a Muslim ban. Oh, how horrible, how awful. I can't believe he would do a Muslim ban. Oh. First of all, there were countries in that list that weren't Muslim, like North Korea, and that wasn't all the Muslim countries. <laughs> right? It was the ones, it was, it was Yemen, okay? It was Somalia, Oh, Muslim ban. Oh, people were losing their minds over that. And the other, the other major Trump derangement syndrome moment was when Trump was in some closed door meeting. And goodness, I wish we had audio of it, but I don't need to hear. I, I, I know exactly how it went in my brain. Uh, and he, he said uh, that some countries are blank hole, blank hole countries. And people left that meeting, and they were, oh, oh. I can't believe we have a president. I wouldn't say such a thing. Oh, he called these countries blank hole countries. It was horrible. Oh my goodness. I'm so, I'm, I'm sick. I'm going to be sick. I can't believe it. Oh my goodness. It was awful. It was the worst thing I've ever heard of. And we're like, well, what country was he talking about? Haiti. 
Oh. Any other country? El Salvador country with at the time the highest murder rate in the world. Oh, so they kind like they're they kind of are blank hole countries. Then, huh? Well, sure, yeah, they're they are, but I can't believe he would say such a thing. And he, I, I'm reading this is uh, and uh, <clears throat> NBC article at the time. Uh, Donald Trump referred to African countries, Haiti and El Salvador as blank hole nations during a meeting <clears throat> and asked why the U.S. can't have more immigrants from Norway. <laughs> oh, that's so good. But that's like, of course, of course. Why don't we bring in more people from normal places? No, we have to bring in more people from Gaza. Gaza. <laughs> Gaza. Why? Because we have to decolonize. Trump's like, I don't know. Can we bring in more people from Japan? Japan's a normal place. Like, that's fine. No, no, no. No more, no more Japanese. It's got to be Haitians. We got to bring in all the Haitians. Okay. We got to bring in people. We got to bring in MS 13 gang members from El Salvador. That's, that's, who we, that's what we got to do. That's what the dumb statue says. The goal is to decolonize America. It means to destroy America. And we are letting them in in the name of being nice. And we know who we're letting in. See this? Oh, I got to take a break. I don't have to take a break. It's serious sex time. I can do whatever I want. There's no commercials. The goal is to destroy. This is different than the Trojan horse. Ah, yes, the Trojan horse. The Trojan horse, if I remember correctly, uh, was the, the Greeks hiding inside of this big wooden horse. Right? We all know the story. And it was a way to trick the people of Troy to get inside the gates. Right? We got to get inside the city of Troy. How are we going to do it? So we're going to pretend we're going to leave. We're going to pretend we give up. You win this time, Troy. And, but really, we're going to get inside this, this horse. Right? And uh, the Trojans stupidly brought it inside their gates. They thought it was a symbol of their victory and, and the spoils of victory. And they were stealing it from the Greeks. The Greeks, for some reason, built this big horse. So now we're just going to take it. And we look at the, the Trojans and we're like, what a bunch of idiots. Why would you do that? Why would you bring in this big giant hollow horse? You didn't even look inside of it. You didn't check the horse. It's pretty heavy. When you pulled it in, you didn't, you didn't notice. Wow, this thing's pretty heavy. From the, Like if you go to the fridge today and you pick up the milk and it weighs... 40 pounds you're like oh maybe there's not milk in here maybe there's something bigger so i don't know but they don't care so they just keep pulling it in what we're doing is way stupider because we know what's inside the horse the enemy is saying we hate you we hate you let me destroy your university from the inside And pay me $10,000 for it <laughs> or whatever that guy was paid for that decolonized Harvard event. I hate you, Harvard. Hire me to give a presentation at your university about how horrible you are and the best way to destroy you from within. And we say, great. We let them in. That's way worse than the Trojans. At least the, the I mean, the Trojans stupidly didn't think that there were Greeks inside the horse. We know who's inside the horse. 
there are people who say, America, we hate you. There are people who say, death to Israel, death to America. And we say, oh, come on in, refugee. Come on in. By the way, why are they refugees? Oh, because they killed 1,400 Jews in a terrorist act. And Israel is retaliating. So now they're refugees. Oh, okay. Come on. Come on. Come on, everyone. They're not even pretending. It would be like if the Greeks if the Greeks said, uh, Hey, Trojans, we're in the horse. Maybe the Trojans were pulling the horse in and it was like it was like bumpy, you know? And the Greeks inside were like, hey, can you please a little smoother? It's pretty it's pretty pretty hot in here. Hurry up. It's hot in here. And it's uh got like a little it's getting you guys are really bumpy. It's hurting my neck. And the Trojans are like, Well, well, what are you guys doing in there? Get, get get out, get out, come on in. Come on inside. We'll fix you up, get you some food. Now, if I believe, I forget the guy's name, but in the Aeneid, there was a guy, there was a Trojan priest who said, don't do it. There's a Trojan priest who said, do not trust the horse, Trojans. <laughs> that was the line. Do not trust the horse. Whatever it is, I fear the Greeks, even those bearing gifts. He said, don't do it. And they did it. There are people today in America saying, don't do it. But we'll do it. Just know that you are who they want to decolonize. Colonizer. Art News Daily. Want to go right to one of my favorites. I'm a Joe Morris. I'm a Joe. How are you today? Hey, good morning. Just a just a humble scribe, you know, getting, all... getting herself together for the day. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to interrupt your uh, your your uh, rising up to conquer today's challenges. Uh, <laughs> thanks, thanks for giving us some of that time. Uh, let's start with the speakers race. So, did you think that it would wrap up tomorrow? No, no, nothing can be that easy. Nothing can be that smooth. We have to get to know who we're working with here. Um, but what I find really interesting about this, there's like a little bit of a tabloid drama going on because, um, you know, as we all watched last week, Scalise was the first one up uh, to potentially be speaker. And everybody kind of became a team player in in. You know, at least, you know, Jordan and, and you know, you had the, the the leadership who kind of coalesced around Scalise and we were all going to play nice and, you know, help him get there. And Jordan even offered to give him his kind of nominating speech and it was all wholesome. And then that fell apart. And now we have the next one up, Jim Jordan, who is trying to get the vote together and Obviously, Congress is like herding cats. You have people from all over, kind of the ideological spectrum in the Republican Party, and uh, and he comes up short, twenty votes, and well, sixteen, but twenty people vote against him. 
and and where's Scalise? Apparently, he is not doing the same for Jordan as Jordan was willing to do for him, which is it's all his people who are voting against Jordan, um, and he's apparently refusing to. I think, as Breitbart reported, be a team player. So, so it seems to be that Scalise is like low key. The reason that Jordan is not speaker right now because it's it's his allies who are not coalescing around him. First of all, my uh, goal whenever we talk is to see how many times I can get you to say against. Uh, and right right now we're at three. So that's. <laughs> phenomenal for one for one appearance i I just microaggressed you so hard uh so i I wasn't gonna focus too much on what happened to steve scalise although i I think it's now important because it's still happening it's still a thing he's still a player here do you have any insight into why the steve scalise attempt didn't work out why did that fizzle out or Maybe worse than fizzle out. What happened? And, and and therefore, is there bad blood now? And is he really the one who's going to stop this? Or is everyone going to settle down and, and Steve Scalise will get the guys together and just wrap this up? Listen, like, I think what is what the Scalise thing was and, and what's why Jordan is the one in the wing is because, listen, like, the McCarthy debacle was because the grassroots ultimately, you know, this is a Matt Gates move, and we don't know how it's going to pan out. And I think Matt Gates's legacy is really riding on how this pans out. But he ostensibly did that because there was grassroots pressure to remove Republicans from power who are not in the populist loop. And the reason, like, the thing that catalyzed this McCarthy thing was overspending. Was not taking the budget seriously, was not taking spending seriously. And Scalise doesn't have the same grassroots support at all. Mm. Or not not only not the same, but doesn't have that grassroots energy, doesn't speak to that constituency, really. Um, And Jordan is there because he does. And Jordan has only come this far because he does. You know, the the American people are done with the Uniparty. They're done with the political establishment. And obviously, I think people are reasonable and they understand that we do have a very slim majority in the House. We do have a Democratic Senate and we do have a Democrat in the White House. But that being said, Republicans were given the majority last election in the House and they expect that you won't have every single one of President Biden's priorities funded. They expect that there will be some sort of critical examination of the money going to these institutions like the DOJ, which deliberately target um, for destruction in some cases, the MAGA base. And they expect that there be a leader in the House who is advocating for their interests and for their political priorities. And I think that that has been lacking. Again, we can attribute it to all kinds of reasons that we have to make deals and we have to negotiate with people who don't share those priorities and blah, blah, blah. But I don't think people felt like they had their guy, that they had somebody who really had their interests in mind uh, fighting for them in the House. And Scalise is kind of from the same flavor as McCarthy mm-hmm. and from the same flavor as, as what people perceive to be the establishment. And Jordan, regardless of how he ultimately ends up governing, at least people feel like he 
gets them. Hmm. And that is, I think, why we're here and where we are right now and why it's Jordan and why Scalise fell apart is because people need a fire breather and expect a fire breather to be in that position, to not just acquiesce to every single Ukraine dollar that is expected of Washington. Yep. Is there a general reason why or reasons why the 20 voted against Jim Jordan? Or are there 20 different individual reasons from 20 different individual people who have their own gripes or whatever? Uh, or is there, is, there, is there like a main thing that he needs to confront here? Yeah. I don't like, you know, no explanations were given to me, right? Like to the public. And I don't know these guys. You know, I'm not sitting at dinner with them. But it seems like it's like personal. That these guys have loyalty to Scalise. These are Scalise's allies, and Scalise has not, at least not given them the nod to say, okay, listen, we got to put our arms down and coalesce around somebody. Jordan is the guy. Let's give in. So these aren't aren't lefty Republicans. These aren't, so there's, there's my understanding is there's 14 Republicans who represent districts that Joe Biden won, right? So they're almost Democrats or something like that. So I thought it would be those guys, the 14 that were furthest on the, or the 20 that are furthest on the left. But you're saying it's not even that necessarily. No, no, not, no, not necessarily. No, it's mm. not. It's, it's, this stuff is so petty and personal in so <laughs> many ways. Um, yeah. And we have seen that over and over again in Congress. It's, this is made up of a couple hundred personalities and they have their own lives and uh, relationships and we are all along for this little petty ride. Yeah, I hate And that's what this is a continuation of, it seems, is, is they don't like Jordan's face yeah. and, or they're <laughs> loyal to somebody else. And, uh, I mean, realistically, come on, every day that this goes on, the Democrats are dunking on us. This isn't about this isn't about ideology or politics. This is about uh, we don't want Jordan, mm. or we want somebody else, or we're loyal to somebody else who who doesn't want Jordan or whatever. That's that's the way the house is, and as annoying as it is to observe, I I mean we all see that's how this works. And and the truth is, like to think about McCarthy, that was so admirable about him was that he was known for picking up the phone and calling every single member or in, 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 at least in the caucus, you know, and, and he was known for really working each individual member to really see where they are, what they need, what their priorities are, you know, whatever. And, and, and trying to build individual relationships with each one of these individual members and, I think that is what was so good about him and, and how he does politics is he was mindful of this dynamic. And and obviously you're not going to be able to win the hearts and minds of every single member to you personally, but that's kind of what he tried to do. And that's probably why he was successful in the past. Obviously he had one heart and mind that he couldn't win, which was Matt Gates's. But, but, that's that's what this is. It's all these different personalities. One heart and mind. So it's interesting. Just to wrap up this, and we'll move to something else. Um, when I when I thought that it was the twenty furthest left Republicans who didn't like Jim Jordan because he's so far on the right, I thought that that would be a difficult thing to overcome for him. Like, what concessions would he have to make 
to get those 20 on board. But then you're like, no, it's more of a personality thing from everyone, even like in the middle, like, like more Steve Scalise era. And it's like, oh, well, that should be easy then to to overcome. But then I'm like, oh, no way. That could be even harder to overcome. <laughs> right? People's personalities. Well, because like, what do you do if somebody's like, no, I just like somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. Like, there's not, you can't really, it's very difficult to work with that. I think mm-hmm. what's going to end up happening is you have more powerful members and less powerful members and the less powerful members are often influenced by some more powerful ones and who they align themselves with or who they like or whatever. And you have to end up playing politics and kind of winning over the more powerful ones and a bunch of more powerful ones. And then the less powerful ones fall in line. Yeah. Okay. Uh, 11 o'clock today. I think that's is... really how this sausage is made. Yeah, and I, I, hate, I just Unfortunately. hate it. Unfortunately. I hate it. I hate it all. It was just about issues, and there was some guy who needs a railroad in some town that you could just go to him and be like, how do we get this railroad built? Yep. Not that pragmatic, unfortunately. Yeah. Yep. You wonder, yep. why do we elect these people? Is this high school? I know. <laughs> I know what everyone's thinking. I'm a humble scribe, but also a humble mind reader. <laughs> uh, let's... <laughs> Let's so today eleven o'clock. Uh, I don't know. I don't want to ask you to make a prediction, but is he going to wrap it up? Let me let me ask you to make a prediction. Is Jim Jordan going to get it? I can't do that because you know that's the mistake that all these guys make is they say, "Oh no, you you know." I think Chip Roy did this yesterday, where he goes, "Oh, it'll be eight people that we need to get over," and oh no, it's twenty. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah. it's no, I don't play that game. This is why here. I don't like sports. So I, don't, I don't want to pigeonhole myself and let everybody know that I actually don't know what I'm talking no, about. Yeah, no, at least, at least keep the illusion alive. Well. Yeah, I, this is why I hate sports talk radio. It's like, who's going to win the game today? It's like, I don't know, just wait a couple hours and we'll find out. Like, I don't understand why we need to predict things that are going to happen in like literally three hours. Um, okay, let's, I, I want to talk about. To. I just don't think I can. These but, people are, are all over the place. Yeah. Uh, I want to talk about your Hunter article in a minute, but first, um, any thoughts on Israel and the media's coverage of Israel? We spent the second hour of the show talking about this uh, rocket that hit the hospital, which is an amazing story uh, of the media just just revealing themselves. Uh, in the first hour, we talked about uh, this word decolonize and how there's been a decolonizing movement in all of our universities for a long time now. And that literally means to destroy, to abolish, uh, decolonize Harvard, the people who ran that in Harvard, paid for by Harvard, said that their goal is to abolish Harvard, <laughs> right? So uh, we talked about decolonizing yeah. earlier. So anyway, do, do you have any thoughts that you'd like to share? I mean, yeah, the the coverage of this has been, I mean, as all wars, to be honest, because, you know, I'll let the, I'll let the audience in on a little industry secret, which is that a lot of these news organizations, and Breitbart is not included in this, I'll proudly say, very proudly say, but a lot of these news organizations are literally just interested in clicks. They're literally just interested in getting a headline up, one that is as bloody and salacious as humanly possible, ideally, and getting you to click on it and as fast as possible. So um, they are just kind of running with whatever. And this hospital thing is a great example of that where Initial reports said that Israel hit a hospital in Gaza City and 500 people got killed in the hospital. Oh, my God, what, what horror. I must click on this story to learn more. Well, as it turns out, the, the, this rocket was not Israeli. It was from Islamic Jihad, which is another group inside Gaza, um, another terror group inside Gaza. 
um, I guess as, as described by its name. Um, and, and it was a rocket that went sideways from inside of Gaza from a terror group there. And now we're learning that actually maybe 500 people are not dead. It kind of hit like a parking lot. And you still have people like Rashida Tlaib who are tweeting. I just posted this last, uh, this morning where she's posting this blood libel that's still left up that she got from wherever about 500 people dead at the hands of Israel. It's like, it's just, and, and I understand the fog of war, and it's very, it can be very, very difficult to discern what's going on and what's real and what's not real, especially when you're sitting in New York City or wherever and you're trying to report on something that's 6,000 miles away and, and you're not there, obviously, and you can't verify it yourself. But there's very, very little discretion this is obviously a highly emotional thing for a lot of people. People have their team that they're rooting for, uh, and uh, and they're just trying to kind of get something up without really much regard for whether it's true. And this is a very dangerous game, you know, for both for both groups involved. Because on the one hand, you know, you have people accusing Israel of things. On the other hand, you have people accusing. Um, you know, vast swaths of Palestinians of other things or whatever. And it, it creates this resentment that is not healthy and not good. And the coverage has been really not helping in that dynamic that exists all over the world. And um, Breitbart has been really one of the few outlets that we have not had to fuzz up a thing mm. on this. We have been extremely careful to not have to go back after the fact and be like, well, actually, sorry, uh, it was actually the other guy that did that or that actually didn't happen or the casualties are much lower or whatever. We yes. have not been doing that. Joel has been really leading the coverage on this, and he has been, like, surgical and really um, using his, his best discretion on these stories to not over-dramatize, inflame tensions, or just report straight up false information and uh I, i've been so proud of it and it's been it's been really remarkable um so now you have biden going to israel today and and he said himself about this hospital thing by the way that it, it was a hoax that the idf did not do this and uh and it'll be really interesting to see what comes of that again you need you need a steady hand in this it's a war and it's an active war and it's it's mostly you're learning about it through like civilian iPhone videos and, and statements from, from two, two military institutions. And it's difficult. It's not, it's not easy. I'm not saying it's easy, but, but uh, it's, it's definitely, there's a media story to be written about this war. Yes, no question. Uh, we spoke earlier of uh, oppression versus oppressed and how the left always needs to fit everything into that narrative, and that's how they see the world. And well, that's that really interesting. You know, that's really interesting. And I've been trying to think about, you know, Slater, maybe one day we'll get on the phone and you can help me figure out how to write this column. Because I've been really thinking about this column and trying to mull this idea of this weird alliance between American progressives and, Palest and the Palestinian cause. I don't think that Palestinians themselves feel any allegiance or loyalty with American progressives. Great but somehow point. American progressives, as you've seen at Harvard... And as you see, you know, with the squad, um, feel this feel this kinship with the Palestinian cause. And I went to one of these Hamas rallies in New York on Friday, and there were all these people there who were self-avowed um, 
communists and socialists who are not um, linked to Palestinians in any other way other than that they felt like Palestinians align with socialism and communism. And I find that dynamic very interesting, how Americans seem to view the world, you know, in some spaces, especially like, you know, in these university circles, they view the world in terms of like who aligns with the American progressive left and in their paradigm of how they organize the world. And Palestinians somehow do, even though Palestinians are probably the worst human rights abusers you know, or among this, the same level of human rights abuses in that region that they always complain that apparently the right does. Like, for instance, discrimination against gays, which is a classic and cliche one, where you have these gays, gays for Palestine. You're not allowed to be gay in, quote-unquote, Palestine yeah. or Syria or Egypt. I mean, this is Muslim Brotherhood territory. Yeah, queers for Palestine. It's very interesting to me. I don't quite understand how they square that circle. They ought to know this. They know anything about the culture over there. Yeah, queers for Palestine. That's a fascinating phenomenon. That is really like like I just like I've seen a couple of people with these signs, queers for Palestine, and I would so love to talk to that person and just really get in their mind. Like, what what are you talking about? Like, what? Well, that's uh, it. They just looked at at the situation like Israel strong, Gaza weak. Yeah. That's Israel it. equals oppressor. Gaza no. equals oppressed. It doesn't need to be more than that. Te- the, the, like, uh, Tel Aviv looks like a nice place. Uh, Gaza City looks like yeah, a dump. Tel Aviv is a much nicer place for queers for Palestine, let me tell you. <laughs> I imagine. But like, Tel Aviv's <laughs> nice, so therefore they're the oppressor. They're the colonizers. Uh, and then Gaza City okay. is a dump. Uh, therefore they're the, the oppressed people. And I must always side <laughs> with the oppressed at all times, I, it's like I don't think it's why. Why would we assume it's any more nuanced or complicated than that for for most people? Well, you uh, you know what the ironic thing is, and maybe this is the kicker of the column, is that this worldview that they hold requires a level of cultural ignorance that you don't even see. It requires so so appropriating their culture to into like the American worldview, the American left wing worldview, that that you've totally ignored who these people are. Yes. For better or worse. Gosh, it's so just assuming in- that these ancient civilizations and these ancient cultures just align with with the kind of binary that American leftism has set up, just just completely erases who they are. Because these people have nothing to do with that, and they don't see the world that way. Yeah, like you bring a bunch of people from Gaza, from Hamas, like you guys would like hang out at Berkeley together, or something. Like you guys would all like they'd have a grand time hanging out at, <laughs> at Stanford. Right, <laughs> it's like, and, and the thing is, if you put people from Gaza at Berkeley, they would think they were insane. Like the Gazans would think that the Berkeley people are totally insane. Yeah. They yeah. would have nothing to do with that. Yeah. <laughs> Gosh, that's interesting. Um, so, so to bring it back, that that phenomenon, and like, and it goes to the the rocket too, right? Like, oh, we have to take Hamas's word for it. Like, tie goes to the oppressed. I like because that's the new the New York Times changed headline is um, Israel and Palestine uh, like blame each other for blast at hospital, and it's like I will never know. Emma Joe, you know, 
So Ty goes to the runner. Ty goes to the ter- terrorists. Uh, we, they have a greater claim to truth because of their oppression. So we need to believe them more than our ally, Israel, even though they have all the video. Et so that plus clicks, plus the desire to get clicks, those two things together, that alone is a very deadly combination. And you bring up Breitbart. And Breitbart, it's yeah. very interesting. I remember talking to Alex, uh, one of the first times we talked, and we talked about that, and he so stressed Breitbart's dedication to getting things right over getting things first. And I'm curious, I'm curious, and like that, there's a cost to that. There's a click cost to that, no question. Like a little, like an actual, actual therefore, monetary cost, uh, at least in the short term. Uh, Long term, it's for the best, but short term, you know, there's a desire to get the clicks. Um, but, uh, I was going to say something I was going to say, oh, I'm curious how many times Breitbart has to change headlines. Like every other news organization had to do at least once yesterday with this story. Embarrassingly so yeah, like, like a couple times. Often because the truth is we know that everybody is, the sharks are circling all yes. the time. Yes. It's Breitbart. They're waiting for a mistake. They're waiting for a mistake so that they can tar the entire company with that one mistake. So not only is this a matter of Alice's good clarity on the fact that jumping to get the clickbait headline long-term destroys your credibility and destroys your reputation and the reputations of everybody's byline that is on those stories, but also this is a matter of survival for Breitbart, which is that all of these, all of these haters, of whom there are many, would love to see us make a mistake. So it's about the the dignity of the reporters, the dignity of the editors, and the dignity of the company that we're not just jumping for every single clickbaity thing that we can grab, and we're actually using some discretion on like on first of all what the story is and how fast we get it up um, for the sake of accuracy. But it's also a matter of making sure that they don't have any ammunition against us yeah. ever, because they'll use it. Absolutely, and that is a that's top priority of the company. Is, yeah, is really, really good. Was, obviously, um, because inc- this is just this is just everything for us. They can't they can't catch us on this. Yes, yeah. I was encouraged to hear it and then to have seen it uh, firsthand from the from the inside. Uh, Emma Joe Morris, uh, politics editor, Breitbart dot com. Emma Joe NYC on the Twitter. Emma Joe, wonderful to talk to you. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you so much. Have a good one. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to Breitbart News Daily. Uh, tomorrow on the show, Dr. Sebastian Gorka, of course, going to be here. It's Thursday. And also uh, one of my favorites, Professor Bill Jacobson from Legal Insurrection, Cornell Law Professor. Talk about Trump's gag order uh, and talk about uh, universities. And, and there was that professor at Cornell, his school, uh, that was talking all about Hamas and it gave him a thrill. It was exhilarating and all that stuff. So we're talking about the universities and uh, this defund movement that's going on at the universities, which is a beautiful thing to see. He will be here tomorrow at 7 o'clock Eastern. Hope you can be there too. Mike Snyder, Breitbart News Daily. Spread the word.